You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Well-preserved. It makes me think of something in formaldehyde, like a specimen. Well-preserved is a euphemism for really old. So don't worry, Dan, I won't hold it against you, at least not for very long. But no, uh, seriously, it's, a, it's really a privilege and an honor to be able to open the scriptures with you this morning and take a look at what God has for us in his word. And um, I'm following a, a great tradition. As If you were here last Sunday, you know that Dr. Moser himself was up here. Uh, sharing from the scriptures, and uh, he was opening to us uh, several chapters from the book of Matthew, and uh, some of the teachings that Jesus gave, and some of the examples and the deeds that he did, uh, covering several chapters of Matthew, and uh, great stuff, and we're still in the in Matthew, and we're going to be reading some uh, verses from Matthew chapter 21, which uh, was, will be very fresh in your mind, because we were, have been reading that today as a congregation, Matthew chapter 21, but um, Dan, uh, focused his, his um, illustrations of the life of Jesus around a passage in Philippians chapter 2. And uh, it, uh, he, he tied it back to that passage where the Apostle Paul talks about the ministry of Jesus. And he says that um, although Jesus, um, found him, when he found himself in appearance as a man, uh, he, it says earlier he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that focus on sonship of, of Jesus and his obedience to the will of the Father um, sort of paved the way for the, the, what I want to share with you uh, this morning. From uh, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Matthew chapter 21, Ephesians chapter 1, and, and several other passages. So I have, hope you have a Bible with you. And uh, I won't, we won't take the time to read all of the passages, but you can note some that we mentioned in passing and check, check them later so that might be, be helpful to you. I wanted to ask you a question. Are you the kind of person who plans? Are you a planner? At least one person in the congregation is. There, you know, not everybody is. Some people like to just kind of go through life and let things happen, you know, follow the stream of sense experience and don't necessarily make a lot of plans. Um, but and others of us like to map things out and know where we're going and know what's happening and, and try to make plans. And if you are a planner, the kind of person that make plans, then you're like the Lord, at least in that respect. You may not be like the Lord in any, in any other way. But you do share one characteristic in common with the Lord, and that is that he is a God who makes plans. The scriptures talk about this a lot, but one of my favorite passages is Isaiah chapter 25, verse 1. And again, you don't have to turn there, but you can. But in Isaiah chapter 25, um, the, it's, it's actually called the Song of Isaiah, and Isaiah singing. And he says, Lord, I, I give thanks to you, I exalt you, because you our God who works wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. God has formed plans long ago, and he fulfills his plans with perfect faithfulness. God's plans. Human plans, not necessarily the same. 
Have you ever made a plan in your life and uh, you, th you, knew ex you knew exactly, anticipated what was going to happen and it didn't turn out that way at all? And all your plans went kaflui. Solomon talks about this. In, Psalm, in, in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, Solomon says this, Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. I made a lot of plans in my life, but it's the counsel of the Lord that stands. The beloved Scottish poet Robert Burns said, The best laid plans of mice and men go oft astray. They go oft astray. Should we even make plans? Does the Lord want us to make plans? You know, I get the impression from James chapter 4 that it's real, I really shouldn't because uh, we've been studying the book of James together and you may remember it's around verse 13 of James chapter 4 that James uh, says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a city and uh, spend a year there, um, engage in, in business, make a profit. And James says, but you don't even know what your life will be like tomorrow. Your life, he said, is like a vapor. It vanishes quickly. I have a, an electric kettle in my kitchen, and uh, every morning is part of my morning ritual. Do you have a morning ritual, stuff you do the same every day when you get up? My, my morning ritual, the first thing I do when I go downstairs is I, I, I uh, turn on the kettle uh, to make my coffee. And um, it, it, the kettle works really quickly, and in about a minute, the whole, that whole part of the kitchen is full of steam. But the instant that I turn that, that kettle off, the steam's gone. It totally disappears. And James says, that's what your life is like. It's like a vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes away. He says, you ought to say, instead of saying, we'll make these plans to go to the city and, and engage in profit, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will even live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, I'm, I'm even going to live. How do I know what I'm going to be, my life is going to be like a year from now? I may not even live throughout the, for the day. The Lord may require of me my, my life tonight. And so we ought not, not to make plans in that, but to say, if the Lord wills, I will live and do this or that. And, and James goes on and he says, um, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it sounds like the Apostle's telling us that, that making plans is, is evil and arrogant and boastful, and that certainly is true of certain types of plan making, the type that James is condemning in James chapter 4. Our plans, the Lord's plans. One of the big differences between these two is in a, a passage in Isaiah 55 that my brother Dan uh, opened the service with as he was leading in prayer. And in Isaiah 55, the Lord says this, My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so, high, so much higher are my thoughts than your thoughts, and my ways than your ways, declares the Lord. The difference between my plans and the Lord's plans is really a question of altitude. His plans are higher. He sees a lot more because he, he is higher. His thoughts and plans are higher than mine. A couple of years ago, uh, Karen and I had a chance to go with some members of the extended family uh, to Yosemite National Park in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Spectacular place. 
And we, the very first day we came into the park, we ju you hiked just a short distance from the parking area, and uh, you're all of a sudden, you come around a, a bend in the, in the trail, and there it is, Yosemite Falls, the highest waterfalls in the United States. A, a, an amazing, awe-inspiring sight, absolutely beautiful. But the next day in Yosemite, it got even better because we drove up to a high mountain ridge and we came to a point uh, called Glacier Point that overlooks the entire Merced River Valley and it's all stretched out before you. It was actually at, at Glacier Point that John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt stood when they conceived the idea of the national park system, looking out over, uh, uh, over the Merced River Valley. And from Glacier Point, you can not only see Yosemite Falls, this time you're looking down on it, not up at it, uh, but you can also see, as you pan to the right, um, other waterfalls like Vernal Falls and my, my favorite, which is called Nevada Falls, very beautiful, shapely waterfall, not as high as Yosemite Falls, but in some ways even more beautiful. This is the way the Lord sees things. The Lord stands on Glacier Point, and he doesn't just see a little bit. He sees the whole picture. All of eternity from, from time past to eternity future, all, almost 8 billion of us here on this planet, he sees it all, and he has a plan and a purpose and an intention for every part of his universe and every person in it, even you and even me. His ways are higher, his thoughts are higher, his plans. The very first day that I uh, met the Lord, the day I came to Christ, uh, the guy who led me to the Lord gave me a little pamphlet uh, written by one of the greatest evangelists of the 20th century, a man named Bill Bright. And I read the first opening words of this pamphlet, and it said, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. In that moment, it was a lot more than some black ink on, on, printed on some white paper. In that moment, the voice of the Holy Spirit said to me, I'm talking to you. God promised me that he loved me. He had a wonderful plan for my life. And every day since then, he's unfolded more of that plan. And he has kept his promise and has been faithful to his word. And I hope that's been your experience, too. The Lord loves us. He has a wonderful plan for, for all of our lives. The issue for us, the question for us now, when we begin our Christian lives in every stage along the way, is how does my plan for my life fit into yours, Lord? How does my will fit into yours? How do I subject my will to yours? To me, it's all about this. I hope you can see this from where you are. Do you like jigsaw puzzles? Actually, I don't either. I don't like physical jigsaw puzzles. But um, every summer, I sort of have to like them, at least for a while. Uh, because um, we go to this Christian resort with uh, extended family, uh, and um, it's a beautiful place in the Adirondacks, but um, the, uh, the dining hall where we eat, in the basement of the dining hall, uh, there's this, this room that they call the puzzle room, and the puzzle room has all these uh, card tables set up, and each one has a separate puzzle set out on it, 
And um, there are some people in my extended family that really, really love jigsaw puzzles. In fact, one of them's sitting right there, not to mention any names. But um, so what, what, what usually happens is that uh, when we're going to, to dinner, uh, we, uh, my wife and her brother Jack and some, some other um, misled people say, well, before we go up to eat, let's just stop and put in you know, one or two pieces of, of the, into the jigsaw puzzle. And somehow, one or two pieces ends up being a lot more than one or two pieces. And um, I'm sitting there getting hungrier and hungrier. It's trying to be polite, not being very good at it. And I think, is this cruel and unusual punishment to make someone watch you do a jig jigsaw puzzle when they're dying of hunger? But um, the thing I do like about jigsaw puzzles is what they mean figuratively, uh, not literally. Because, see, God is made, making a beautiful masterpiece. It's called history. It's called the universe, and each of us has one of these to fit into the beautiful picture that God is making. Now, now that I have this jigsaw, this piece of the jigsaw puzzle, do I have to put it into the puzzle? What if I go like this and stick it in my pocket? Say, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel, I don't feel like putting my piece of the, into, the, into the puzzle. Am I free to do that? Absolutely. As long as no one's watching, I can slip it into my, into my pocket, and maybe no one will notice the difference right away. Um, this is the equivalent of living a life selfishly, of saying, you know, maybe there's an overall purpose in all of this, but I don't really care about that. What I want to do, and even Christians do this, not just talking about atheists, but even Christians, what I want to do is pursue my goals, get what I want out of life, fulfill myself, and um, forget about the whole picture. And, and this is um, a way that we can live and we can choose to live. Um, and the Lord gives us that, the freedom of doing that. Every time someone looks at that jigsaw puzzle with my piece missing, it's going to be incomplete because I decided to, to, to not fit my piece into the overall puzzle. Matthew chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 21. Finally getting around to Matthew chapter 21, which I mentioned earlier. So uh, if you have a Bible handy, 21st chapter of Matthew. Does Jesus make plans? This is a chapter about Jesus' plans. By the way, my brother Carl preached on this passage, Matthew chapter 21, uh, on... Uh, uh, Palm Sunday, thank you. Couldn't think of the, name, the word Palm Sunday, the, the, the Sunday before the Resurrection Day. Carl preached on this on, on Palm Sunday. By the way, to the point of whether, whether or not Jesus himself during his earthly ministry made plans, I was just thinking of another path, passage which is in Luke 13. And there was a time uh, when, I know you're turning to Matthew 21, but Luke 13, in, in, there was a time when some people came to warn Jesus that Herod was after him. And... Uh, he didn't seem very concerned. This is what he said. You go tell that fox that today and tomorrow I cast out demons and perform cures. On the third day, I reach my goal. Why was Jesus not threatened by the fact that Herod was after him? Because he had a plan. What I'm going to do today, which is the present, tomorrow, the near future, and the third day, 
the third day I reached my goal, Jesus said. And we know a little bit about what Jesus' goal was. And he was very secure in his plans and God's plans for his life. And so Herod was not a threat to him. Jesus is making plans, and, and, it's, and uh, Matthew says that um, when they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and this is from uh, Ze Zechariah 9, 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey. What's Jesus planning about? He knows that he's going the next, uh, immediately into Jerusalem, and um, it, it, what, what, the, what we call the triumphal entry, and that he'll be uh, greeted by crowds who say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He knows that that's his intention to do that. So what, what's he really arranging here? Transportation. He, uh, he knows that this time, although many times before he had walked into Jerusalem and walked out of Jerusalem, but this time was a special time, and he wasn't going to walk. He was going to ride in style. Now, I know that you're probably sitting there and thinking, why didn't he just call for an Uber or a Lyft? Uh, but that was actually about 20 centuries too early for that. So he did the next best thing, which, which, which was he arranged for a donkey. And Carl talked about uh, the amazement of the people and, and what that meant. But um, why did Jesus do this? Matthew tells us very clearly exactly why he did it. He's, why did this happen? This took place. Matthew says, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The daughter, the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, gentle and mounted on a donkey. More than just arranging transportation, this fits into God's eternal plan for my ministry, the Lord Jesus is saying. And we need to ask ourselves every day with what we do, is what I'm doing today part of God's plan? Everything Jesus did was to fulfill the will of his heavenly father. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. The first chapter, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1. This, to me, is one of the clearest examples, demonstrations in the scriptures of God's purposes, God's plan, God's intentions. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is kind of like the glacier point or one of the glacier points of the scriptures where we see things higher. We see things from God's perspective to understand his purpose, his will. Um, the, 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 as, as Isaiah put it, God's plans formed long ago in perfect faithfulness. Ephesians 1 is a special place in the history of this congregation because uh, Fred Poole, who is the founding pastor, loved this passage, preached from it a lot. Um, and uh, he, in fact, he preached from it so much that, um, and, and about God's eternal purposes that he earned the nickname Eternal Purposes Pool. They said, oh, Eternal Purposes Pool is going to preach again today. I wonder if he'll use Ephesians chapter 1. And Pastor Fred died uh, 
several years before uh, Elliot Blake and I and, and others uh, came to this congregation in the early 1970s, so we never got a chance to sit under, uh, under Fred's um, pastoring and teaching, although we did his son John. Uh, but um, back in those days, you know, when Elliot and I came, uh, you know, we were kind of a bunch of troublemakers, and uh, we came to see what, see what we could disrupt. Uh, but you know, it, in the, if you really want to know the truth, I was the good guy, the good kid, and Elliot was the troublemaker. And uh, so, you know, some things never change, as Elena already noted. Some things never change. But uh, eternal purposes, this is what Ephesians chapter 1 is about. What, just what does God have in mind? What was his plan? Let's start in verse 3. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I hope you're with me. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Here's where it gets really good. Verse 4. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's an astonishing fact. Did you ever stop to think about the fact that God chose you and me in Christ before he even founded the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Amazing. Not only that, but in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This is the heart of this passage, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Well, what else did he give us in Christ? What else do we have? Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the ki his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ. Just in that verse, verse 9, God's, God's will, his intention, his purpose. This, we're talking about a God who makes plans. His, his will, which he purposed in Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of time, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, the summing up of all things in Christ. This is God's will. This is his, his eternal redemptive purpose. Again, the big question, how does my will fit into God's will? How does my plan fit into God's plan? And am I, am I making an effort to find that out? When they asked Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 how to pray, the very second thing that Jesus tells us to request. He says that your kingdom come. The first is, Lord, your kingdom come. The second, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what we pray. May your kingdom come, Lord. May your will be done on earth. And that includes my little life, my little piece of the puzzle, even though it looks kind of jagged and weird and doesn't seem like it's much by itself. May your will be done in my life on earth as it is in heaven. When God looks out over all of human history, he sees a lot of things. What is the single most important 
event in human history? Or is it even possible to say? If you think of all the incredible panoply of things that have happened uh, in the course of the human race, is it, was it the invention of the wheel? Was it the rise and fall of the Roman Empire? Was it the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Was it the Magna Carta? Was it the discovery of electricity, which some say happened right here in this city through Benjamin Franklin? Um, was it the Declaration of Independence? What about the Emancipation Proclamation? Um, what about um, the horrible racial massacre that occurred in Tulsa in 1920? What about um, the, uh, any of the things that, that, that have occurred? What about D-Day? Was it D-Day? Uh, was it uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine? What was the most important? Is it really possible to just say there was one single event in all of human history that was the most significant? I think it is possible, and I have a, something to propose to you. And the greatest thing, in my opinion, that ever happened in the whole history of, of humankind on this planet, it wasn't a great discovery. It wasn't a great military victory. It wasn't a proclamation or a declaration. It wasn't something that was even heralded at all. It occurred in a private conversation between two people in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. What happened there was a, a Jewish rabbi about 33 years of age facing the prospect of an agonizing death fell to his knees. And he was in such agony of soul that, that great Drops of sweat like drops of blood were falling from his brow onto the ground. And speaking to only one other person in the universe, he said this, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You think Jesus had warm, fuzzy feelings about going to the cross? You think he was excited about it? Was Jesus free to not go to the cross? Was he forced to go, or did he choose to go? If it's possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That, I believe, was the turning point of all human history. That was the key moment, total surrender to the will of the Father. How am I living my life? Now, I'm in a position today to tell you something about a member of the congregation that you may not know. Some of you may know, but I think most of you don't. And um, there's, uh, she's sitting right there. And uh, my wife, Karen, is a beautiful songwriter. I don't know if you knew that or not about her or not. Um, and when I say she was a beautiful, she's a beautiful songwriter, I mean that in both senses. She writes beautiful songs, and she's a songwriter who's beautiful. Uh, so a beautiful songwriter, and um, she uh, has, has written, she doesn't write a lot of songs, but the ones she writes are really, really great. And uh, about 45 years ago or so, uh, she, uh, roughly speaking, she um, wrote a song that I can never forget, and it was not her own words. She borrowed some words from the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And it was a beautiful song about an apple tree among the trees of the forest, and uh, very touching. Um, but she wrote an even more beautiful song than that a few years later, 
and it was based on the, this, um, this event that I just mentioned, which is in Luke 22, verse 42, Luke 22, 42. And it's, uh, the verses are very profound, the song that Karen wrote, and it, it, it deals with what brought Jesus to the point of, of making that decision and praying that prayer. The verses are profound, but the chorus of the song is very simple. <clears throat> Not my will, but thine, be done every day. Not my will, but thine, be done every day, in every way. We've actually sung that here. I don't know if you remember, but uh, I, I asked Carl if he would learn that, and we've sung that here in, the, in this congregation. But, but this is really what it's all about. And, and going back to Ephesians 1 for a minute, if you are still there, just a, a little bit more from Ephesians 1 about God's will. What, what really is God's will? I said that I think that verse 5, in a sense, is the heart of the passage. God's purpose was to um, adopt the, uh, the adoption of son, as sons of us through Jesus Christ to himself. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. It's all about sonship. We are daughters and sons of God through Jesus Christ. God has grafted us, he's adopted us into his family. That's his will, that's his purpose. We are sons. What's the most important duty of a son or a daughter? Is it not obedience to the will of the Father? Jesus tells a story about this a little later on in Matthew chapter 21. We didn't read it, but you may remember he tells the parable of the father with two sons. And the father comes to the one son in the morning and he says, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son says, I will not. He actually dis verbally disobeys his father, but afterwards he thinks better of it and he goes and works in the vineyard. The father also comes to the second son and he says the same thing, go in the work in the vineyard today. And he says, I will, sir, but he doesn't go. And Jesus asked this piercing question of the Pharisees and of you and me, which one did the will of the father? What has God asked you to do? Are you doing it? Or are you making excuses? Are you putting it off? Which one did the will of the Father? This is what sonship is about. It's about obeying the will of the Father. Paul talks here about predestination, about our adoption as sons, about the mystery of his will. He says in verse 9, um, um, that God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in Christ the summing up of all things in Christ things in heaven and things on earth Paul uses this phrase the mystery of God's will and sometimes we, we think a lot about how mysterious God's will is there's a phrase that you may have heard before it goes like this, God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. Anyone ever heard that quote? God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. A couple of you have heard that. Is that from the scriptures? No. It, is, it comes from a poem 
uh, written by a romantic poet by the name of William Cooper. He was a Christian. He also wrote a hymn called There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. But Cooper wrote this poem, and in that poem he said, God works in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. There's a sense in which Cooper, I think, is right. God sometimes plays it very close to the vest, and sometimes we can't figure out his will. But I, the thing I don't like about this quote from Cooper that's, that's often repeated even in secular circles, I've even hear, heard it on TV, God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform, is it kind of makes God sound like he's a little weird. You know, like God's kind of a kook, you know, and he's, his ways are so strange that who could ever try to uh, explain them or understand them? It's like God is illogical in some way, and uh, he works in mysterious ways. And, and that's a distortion of the image of God, because he, he's not myster mysterious in that sense. What does it say? What does Paul say in verse 9? It says, he made known to us the mystery of his will. God's not trying to keep some kind of a secret. Nah, 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 I know something you don't. Is the Lord like that? Of course not. The Lord isn't, is, doesn't keep secrets and mysteries for the sake of secrets and mysteries. He made known to us, that's what Paul's saying, he made known to us the mystery of his will. He made it very plain, and that's what Ephesians 1, the glacier point of Ephesians 1 is all about, is God revealing and making known his will and making it clear to us, and it's the summing up of all things in Jesus Christ. Paul talks in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 also about this, and it says that God will reconcile all things to himself in this crazy, what seems mysterious to us universe. It doesn't make sense to us from our narrow perspective, but God is going to reconcile all things to himself and all people to himself through Jesus Christ. He will sum up all things in Christ. That's the mystery of his will, and uh, there is a summation coming. There's a day of summation coming. Some people in my family like murder mysteries. Do you like murder mysteries? Do you ever watch murder mysteries on TV or in the movies? Uh, Aaron Ruiz recommended a great one to us a little while ago. It's, it's called Knives Out. It's a murder mystery, great, great movie. The murder victim in Lives Out is Christopher Plummer, the actor's Christopher Plummer, who played a little earlier in his career as Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, if you ever, any of you have ever seen that old movie. If you remember Captain Von Trapp, a few years later he gets murdered uh, in, the, in the movie Knives Out, and uh, Aaron and I recommend that to you. But um, there are other great myst murder mysteries, and um, one of them, well, actually my favorite sleuth is... Uh, a, a creation of Agatha Christie, who wrote more murder mysteries than anybody else and, and is more widely read and produced than anyone else. And his, this particular sleuth of Agatha Christie's is a, 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 a weird, finicky Belgian detective named Hercule Poirot. Any of you ever heard of Poirot? Hercule Poirot. And uh, Poirot, you know, you, you don't want to commit a murder if Hercule Poirot is anywhere in the area, because you know, you know you're, you're going to be found out. And uh, he, um, he painstakingly puts the clues together and uh, is not drawn aside by any red herrings, but he, he, he homes in. And um, there's this great scene at the end of every Poirot story, and most murder mysteries, if you're familiar with this genre, uh, it's called the summation. And what happens is that the, the detective gets all the people together, and usually in the last scene or next to the last scene of the movie, in, in one room. Uh, including the murderer and all the suspects and everyone who's been affected by the murder. And one by one, he goes through the clues and uh, 
starts to put the pieces of the puzzle together. Now, and part of the mystery to me is I can never figure out in advance who the murderer is, but my wife always does. So uh, again, you know, does it seem fair that one person gets all the talents? Anyway, some things are not fair, I guess. But um, I never know who it is until Poirot reveals in the very last scene who the murderer is, and, and suddenly you start to realize how it all fits into place. The Lord is going to have a summation. He's going to have a time when everything becomes plain, when every, all, the, all the secrets are revealed, and uh, Paul calls it the summing up of all things in Christ. Let me ask you some, just one other question, at least, well, maybe not on my last one, but let me ask you another question. Does, does Jesus want you and me to plan in our lives? What do you think? In Matthew 6, in, uh, in about the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, it sounds like he's saying no. Because Jesus says this, um, don't worry about tomorrow. Take no thought for tomorrow. Um, today has enough trouble of its own. Well, that's kind of a big relief to me because I don't really like to make plans, and when I do, they seem to fall through anyway. And here Jesus is kind of giving me carte blanche permission to not make any plans because he said, take no thought for tomorrow. Today is enough trouble of its own. So I guess that lets me off the hook, huh? Just happen to remember... Uh, another passage uh, about 19 chapters later in Matthew. This is in Matthew chapter 25, and it's around verse 4. I don't know if you want to turn there. You can, but you don't have to. But this is in the same gospel, and Jesus is again uh, talking to his disciples, and he's telling them a story. And it's a story about 10 unmarried young people, Matthew chapter, five, t- chapter 25. And they're waiting for something. All these young people are gathered together in one place and they're waiting for an event and it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the wedding feast. And what they're waiting for, these 10 uh, young virgins, young unmarried people, they're waiting to hear something and what they're waiting to hear is the voice of the bridegroom. There was powerful ministry here recently about about brides and about the bridegroom and Jesus being our bridegroom. And, and this is really what we all ought to be living for and what we all ought to be waiting for because there's a time coming when we will hear the voice of the bridegroom. Is there anything that's going to be more important or more beautiful than that? Jesus breaks this group of ten virgins down into two smaller groups. There are five who, as you remember the parable perhaps, are he, he calls foolish, and there are five that he calls prudent. It's a serious thing, which group you fall into, because if you remember the, at the end, the foolish were shut out and did not participate in the marriage supper. What distinguishes the prudent or the wise virgins from the foolish virgins? Do, were they... Did they love Jesus more? Were they more eager to hear the voice of the bridegroom? Not that we can tell. The difference is they didn't plan ahead and they didn't have extra flasks of oil. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. Maybe he's delaying. 
Maybe he's coming at midnight as he did in the parable. Am I planning to be ready? Am I living my life today in such a way that whether he comes tonight or whether he doesn't come in a, th a thousand years, the bride of Christ is going to be ready. This is what we are waiting for. This is the, the summation of all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth, all things he will draw together in Christ. And, and this is what we are waiting for. This is the purpose that should be motivating us. And, 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 and it, it really all goes back to how um, I live my life and how this thing fits in. Am I just pursuing my own goals today, in the near future, in the distant future? Am I satisfying my desires? Am I fulfilling my needs and my wants and who I think I want to be? Or does this fit into God's larger picture? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for um, the truths that you shared with us through our brother Dan last week out of Matthew. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but you humbled himself, yourself. <clears throat> you became obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of death on a cross. Lord, I don't want to live my life selfishly. I thank you that you love me and each of my brothers and sisters here and that you have a wonderful plan for our lives. And Lord, help us to see things from your perspective and Lord, help us to, to take what may seem like a small, insignificant thing sometimes, our, our own lives may seem like a splash of paint that, with jagged edges that doesn't fit in, but it does. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to um, to do what Jesus did and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done.